The visions that come to us in sleep show us many things. Our deepest longings, our greatest fears, the darkest secrets we keep even from ourselves. And sometimes they show us the future. Today, we're sharing stories of precognitive dreams. Welcome to Shadowland, everybody. Welcome. This is a podcast that shines a spotlight on stories of the supernatural, mysterious, eerie, and unexplained. Stuff like ghost ships. Synchronicity. Underground cities. Remote seeing. Gnomes. Interdimensional travelers. Astral projection. Liminal spaces. Miracles. Calls from the wild. Bottomless pits. Portals to another world. All that stuff. All that stuff and more. Lots more. I'm Christina Callery. And I'm Seth Jablon. And today we're sharing stories about... Precognitive dreams. Precognitive dreams. A.K.A. prophetic dreams, predictive dreams, dreams of the future, whatever you want to call them. Um, That's what we're doing today. Um, By the way, speaking of synchronicity, Uh I also was going to throw out remote viewing, but you said it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of synchronicity synchronicity in those topics as we read them out. Yeah. Cool. So, So we're back, everybody. We are back. In the new year, I guess it's been the new year for a minute, but <laughs> but we usually do this. We take a beat. Yeah. Um, we need yeah. to like just kind of you know reflect, brainstorm, you know, kind of yes. plan ahead. Um, but yes, so we have lots of good stuff coming this year, and lots of dreams, right? Lots of dreams. Yeah, a bunch of stuff about dreams. So. Yeah, and I know you, Seth. You're interested in this topic too, and it, yes, for I sure. think the reason why it's taken so long for for us to get to this is because it's so huge. There's so it much is. you can talk about, and so yes, it's sort of categorical, and there's a lot we wanted to talk about. It never could seem mm-hmm. to sort of it almost seemed too big to sort of process exactly what we want to do. So we're gonna be breaking it down. So right, looking right. forward to more of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. Just stay tuned because we're going to do more. Um, There's so much when it comes to the paranormal and dreams um, there, you know, you have dream visitations, which, you know, like departed loved ones appearing to people, dream telepathy, dreamscapes. um, Yes. So there's so much. It's so rich and it's and it's like a scientific territory. So it takes a lot to uh, to actually do research on on these topics. Um, but I really wanted to start out with this one, precognitive dreams, because I've had experiences in my own life with precognitive dreams. Oh, really? Yeah. I feel I've like always, you've mentioned it, but I don't know if you've ever told me them specifically, yeah. but. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's probably started out when I was a teenager, but I've always felt like my, psychic or spiritual side is kind of expressed in my dream state the hmm. most strongly. Interesting. And I kind of feel that way sometimes too. Like some certain you? aspects. Yeah. Well, it's certain, I'd say at different times in my life, there was more, I feel like communication 
from something in my psyche with me, <laughs> you know, through dreams at different times. But yeah. So I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. 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 And uh, we're not alone in this. Um, this, you know, the, the, the notion that dreams have a spiritual component or specifically a prophetic aspect to them dates back probably as long as humankind has been around thousands of years certainly um but i'll just start out with a couple uh just different interesting facts about dreams so in a typical lifetime we spend about six years in the dream state i mean that's just astounding when you think about it yeah it really is yeah so you know, like we said, we're going to be doing a series of dream episodes. And one of the ones you and I talked about uh, was doing dreamscapes. So then this idea that we live six years somewhere in this r- dream realm is is fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like, is it a real place? I mean, I think, like you're saying, there's all these different categories of dreams. And some of them, I think, are just sort of psychological waste. You know what I mean? It's just like our oh. mind getting stuff out that's like not properly digested but but then there's other dreams that have a different quality and 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 I feel like yeah we've definitely um I've definitely experienced like visiting the same place twice in a dream and even knowing it and that that's really interesting to me yeah like, do these I, places exist in some way I right. don't mean physically I just mean like in some psychological way or yeah yeah I feel like we're kind of getting a little bit ahead into the next <laughs> okay, you yeah, know yeah. A, another episode <laughs> yeah. but but I I'm with you there, and and I, yeah. I've all I've had this sense for a, a long time that deja vu a lot of times could be, mm. um, something that you've dreamed before, like it feels so similar right. because maybe you haven't experienced it in life or even in a past life, but you've been there in a dream. Well, isn't that isn't there another term like deja vu? It's like um, I can't remember what the words are, but I think there is a term, another like. Mm. French term for having experienced it before in a dream. Like mm. and it's, that it's like the feeling of deja vu even. I can't remember, but. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll be getting into that down the road. Um, but for now, we're doing the precognitive dreams. So depending on who you ask, it's estimated that anywhere between 20% to 50% of people have had at least one precognitive dream so they're very commonly reported and people who are more sensitive and creative types are people who are more in touch with their subconscious tend to be the ones that report these the most but that doesn't necessarily mean that they tend to have more they they might just be more aware of the dreams and and more in tune with them Humans have reported and believed in prophetic dreams, as we said, for thousands of years. And this idea that dreams can foretell the future dates back like long into human history. It spans pretty much every culture, including the ancient Egyptians, Hebrews, Chinese, Greeks, Romans. Aristotle even talked about prophetic dreams. And so, in fact, let's start with one from antiquity. So this one took place on the night of March 14th, 44 BC. 
Calpurnia, who was the wife of Roman Emperor Julius Caesar, had a nightmare that was so troubling to her that she felt certain it foretold impending tragedy. So some historical sources claim that she dreamt of the collapse of Caesar's house. Others say she actually saw her husband dying in her arms. But whatever the dream actually was, it left Calpurnia with such a sense of urgency that when she awoke, she begged Caesar not to go to the Senate the following day. So, as most people do, when someone tells you a crazy dream they had the night before, he brushed it off, and he went to meet with a group of his former allies anyway, and he was stabbed to death. So, that, that, that next day, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, another uh, famous uh, example of a precognitive dream was Abraham Lincoln, and uh, right. we've talked about Abraham Lincoln before, um, and also his wife, Mary Todd, who had a strong interest in spiritualism. Um, in one of our earlier episodes, we talked about uh, doppelgangers, because Lincoln famously spotted his own doppelganger in the mirror one day, which seemed to be an omen of his impending death. But that wasn't the only foreshadowing he'd had. So... Lincoln told a friend of his, um, who was also his bodyguard, named Ward Hall Lehman, about a disturbing dream he'd had. He heard sounds of weeping and mourning coming from somewhere in the White House, and so he went to follow it. And here's a direct quote that was later published in The Recollections of Abraham Lincoln. I kept on until I arrived at the East Room, which I entered. There I met with a sickening surprise. Before me was a catafalque, which is a scaffold for a coffin, on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards, and there was a throng of people gazing mournfully upon the corpse whose face was covered, others weeping pitifully. Who is dead in the White House, I demanded of one of the soldiers. The president was his answer. He was killed by an assassin. Three days later, after telling his friend of this dream, on April 15, 1865, Lincoln attended a play at Ford's Theater and was shot by John Wilkes Booth, and he died the next day. And wow, his body was laid that. out yeah. in the East Room, which he saw in oh his dream. Wow, I did not know that. That he saw, I mean, not just after his death, but he saw this event. Not, not that he just saw that he, not that he had a premonition he died, but he actually saw this event after his death. Is really interesting too, right? Yeah, he attended his own funeral in his dream. Right, um, right. And... The room specifically where his body would be laid out th- three to four days later after he was actually shot. Right. So just, I mean, I know you have plenty to, more to go on, you know, but, but I mean, I just, for a second, if we can talk about that, because to me, there's something, I mean, we already know that the consciousness lives on after death, right? We know that even like, we certainly know it anecdotally, but. We also know it scientifically, right? But just the idea that 
you know, a scene to the future is almost like, you, you know, you could argue that it's sort of like reading the sort of circumstances very well, you know what I mean? Like sort of paying attention to all the circumstances sort of lead you to a certain conclusion. But the idea that like his consciousness was able to see past his own death is really interesting. Do you mean just the fact that he's in danger anyway at a pivotal time in history that he could have surmised, oh, yes, I might die and have that fear, which would result in a dream? Right. But that he mm-hmm. saw past that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's like he saw an event the, after he was the dead. The specifics, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he saw the yeah, specifics, then, and he also saw, you know, just the fact that his body was laid out in that very same room, and it was three days later. And we can right. get into well, that as, if, as we go on, too. But just, yeah, the kind of debunking skeptics who are like, ah, it's just coincidence. Right. But, I mean, the, just the idea that, like, his consciousness maybe actually witnessed this and he was somehow, you know, connected through that dream to his consciousness in the future. Yes. Anyway, so, yeah, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> Yes, I, I can't wait to talk. I can't wait okay, to discuss yeah, this because yeah. I really want to hear what you think about this. Um, so the next one, uh, American writer and humorist Mark Twain, uh, also known as Samuel Clemens, had a dream that haunted him the rest of his life. So if you've read Mark Twain, you know he had more than a healthy dose of skepticism, and he was pretty much an atheist, which you'll gather from this quote. Religion was invented when the first con man met the first fool. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But this experience that he had ended up shaking him to his core, and it stayed with him, uh, you know, throughout his lifetime. Twain had a younger brother named Henry, and he and Henry were planning to set off on a riverboat voyage on a vessel named the Pennsylvania. Twain would be an apprentice pilot, and Henry would be what's known as a mud clerk, which was someone kind of like an intern, I guess, who would help out in exchange for lodging and food. The night before they set sail, Twain had a harrowing nightmare. In the dream, he saw his brother Henry's corpse laid out in a metal coffin. Metal, which is very strange, right? Mm-hmm. Normally they're wooden. Um Henry was wearing one of Twain's suits, not his own, and there was a large bouquet of white roses on his chest with a single red rose in the center. Twain awoke overwhelmed with a feeling of grief. The dream had seemed so real to him that he was momentarily convinced that Henry really had died and that his body was in the next room. So if he got up and looked in the room, he would see his brother lying there. And this feeling persisted until Twain forced himself to walk around outside. And it wasn't until he'd walked an entire block, quote, before it suddenly flashed on me, he said, that there was nothing real about this. It was only a dream. So he had to get up and walk around. This was so, it felt so real and specific and vivid and urgent that he had to actually walk it off. Hmm. Yeah. So then, you know, as you would do, Twain told family members about this nightmare, and they reassured him, of course, this is only a dream. You're going on a voyage. 
you know, you've got nerves, all of the things people would say to reassure someone. So the two brothers boarded the ship and they began their voyage. Although it had left a lasting impression on Twain, he he managed to put the dream out of his mind and, and forget about it. So this journey wasn't an easy one from the start. Twain butted heads with the Pennsylvania's pilot, whose name was William Brown, who was kind of a dictator, sounds like a jerk. He had a violent temper. And at one point, Twain actually got into a physical fight with this guy. But the ship's captain took Twain's side and said, hey, we're going to find a new pilot when we get to New Orleans. They docked there, and unfortunately, though, they couldn't find a replacement for um, William Brown. So he ended up staying, and Twain transferred to another boat just to get away from this inflammatory situation. And he left his brother Henry behind on the Pennsylvania. Right before he left, Twain and Henry had a conversation where they talked about what they would do in the event of a disaster on board. And one of the common ones was a boiler explosion, which was a serious risk on these types of riverboats. Then Twain left, and only a short time later, the Pennsylvania's boiler exploded. Henry was horrifically burned in the blast. He lingered for a few days and he was taken to a location for injured people in Memphis, but he ended up dying. Now, Henry had been, he was young, but he'd also been very handsome, and although his injuries were fatal, his face had remained untouched by the scalding steam and fire that he'd endured. And there were some women volunteers at the location called the Memphis Exchange, um, where he was laid out. And they were so moved when they looked at him by his youth and his beauty that they decided they were going to give him the finest casket that they had available. And it was a metal coffin. So Twain was, of course, called, uh, you know, notified his brother had passed away. And when he entered the room for the dead at the Memphis Exchange on June 21st, 1858, he was stunned to see a replay from this dream that he had had. There was his younger brother laid out in a metal casket wearing a suit that was not his own because he wouldn't have had a suit on this river boat. It was a borrowed suit. And as Twain grappled with the scene, he realized only one thing was missing from what he'd seen in his nightmare. There was no bouquet of roses. And then, as if on cue... A woman came in, probably one of the volunteers who, who'd helped to lay out the body, and she placed a bouquet of white roses on Henry's chest with a, a red one right in the center, which was exactly a mirror of Twain's dream. Wow. So Mark Twain tr- struggled with the meaning of this event from then on, and he was haunted by this possibility that you know, what was the meaning of this? You know, could he have intervened in some way? Um, and it plagued him and interested him to the point where he actually became one of the first members 
of the Society for Cyclical Research in London after it was founded in 1882. And he made a study of coincidence and, quote, mental telegraphy at that point in time. So it kind of seemed to shift his belief from being just, you know, straight up, you know, maybe what we would call more of a materialist mindset, you know, definitely Mm -hmm. atheist to being a little more open to things. But, um, yeah, it's just... uh, just astounding the the details of that dream and how it lined up yeah and i mean i think it's really interesting just the idea of you know we we have a sort of world view and then we experience something that's pretty clear but in somehow i i actually don't really understand how this sort of contradicts his worldview. <laughs> you know it doesn't seem that right. contradictory but perhaps for him if he you know I, I don't know why it's described that he sort of struggled with it, but um, he was clearly searching for something by joining this organization or whatever. But the idea that like when we like we almost don't believe ourselves sometimes, you know, we have these um, experiences like that. And we almost don't know how to trust them or we're afraid to trust them or something like that. Right. Even mm-hmm. though we experience it, it's like, I mean, you see that with even some of these people who who witness sort of, these sort of paranormal events or something like that. They almost feel like they're a dream because they don't know how to place them in their, um, in their worldview. It's like, we almost like our mind rejects them or something, even though our direct experience is telling us something very specific. Like, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And a lot of times these experiences seem to correlate with disaster Mm-hmm. So, but not always, so, but I'll, so, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go on with more. And, yeah. yeah. And I, I deliberately chose dreams that were so specific that you would have trouble writing them off as coincidence. I mean, there were some, I think, where, where like a member of Leonard Skinner dreamed of a plane crash right before the plane crashed with, you know, and didn't go on the plane. But it turns out the plane was really rickety, so it kind of made sense that they would have this dream. So I really wanted to choose things that were more unexplained and just, you know, v- yeah, very well, almost yeah. like, unre- like you can't refute them. But that's what, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like, why do we need to do that? I mean, like for th- thousands and thousands of years, people see events before they happen in their dreams, <laughs> right? Like, right. it's almost like, why, what, what's the resistance to that idea? We, I don't, we live in a, we live in a materialist society. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe that's just I think it. we're kind but of like, shamed. It just seems so, like, These it's days like we're almost shamed. mundane. Yeah. That's true. That's I mean, true. if you, if you read the Bible, I mean, the, the kings, the leaders, you know, are equivalent of, of a president would call in advisors and tell them about their dreams yeah, to get right, interpretations. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that doesn't happen now. <laughs> you know, they'd, yeah, be, they'd uh, be laughed out of office, you know, or, or shamed and ridiculed or, no, they, or, or no, they, written off the, as the crazy. Truth is, is, the truth is they probably still do stuff like that and it's just secretive, right? I'm sure there's presidents with psychic advisors and all sorts of stuff like that. We just, they don't talk about it anymore because... Right you don't want to be ridiculed, but I'm sure that you could like scrub back through history and find plenty of examples of people taking advice from alternative sources and just not wanting to admit it because of the prevalent zeitgeist of the age. Yep. Yep. Anyways. 
Please continue. <laughs> okay. So um, this next one took place on October 20th of 1966 in the coal mining town of Aberfan, Wales. A 10-year-old girl named Errol Mae Jones woke up from a terrifying dream and, he, and asked to tell her mother about it. So at first, her mother said she didn't have time, she'd have to hear it later, but the girl was so impacted by this dream that she insisted, no, mummy, you must listen. I dreamt I went to school, and there was no school there. Something black had come down all over it. So overlooking the town of Aberfan was a high hill, and sitting atop it was an area um, where the waste from the coal mine was deposited, and it was called a coal tip. So basically, all of the waste from this coal mine, which would have been, you know, black, was sort of piled atop this area that overlooked the town. And because of this, many of the townspeople were concerned about the potential risk of the coal waste running down. So Errol's mother assumed that's where the dream came from and that she dreamt this because she'd somehow absorbed the fears of the townspeople, you know, and just that's how she made sense of it. And also, this wasn't the first time that month the girl had brought up kind of a morbid subject. Earlier that month, she'd announced to her mother that she wasn't afraid to die and explained that she'd be joining a couple school friends of hers that had passed away. Whoa. So she just announced this to her mother. So that time as well, her mother had just brushed this aside, changed the subject. and But on that day, Earl went to school. It was Thursday, October 21st, and nothing happened. There was no sign of anything wrong. It was just like any other day. But the next morning, on Friday, she headed off to school again. And at 9.15, the coal tip broke, and an avalanche of black coal sludge, water, and boulders roared down the hill and covered the entire village the landslide took down trees houses whatever else was in its path it's just like an avalanche might do or a tidal wave and another thing it took was the entire back of the schoolhouse 144 people were killed in the landslide it was extremely tragic the majority of them were children at the school including little errol Oh, so, yeah, I know. In the wake of the tragedy, a psychiatrist in a neighboring town um, whose name was Dr. John Barker, he'd had a strong interest in precognition, and he began to wonder if anyone in the village had experienced any kind of psychic premonitions leading up to the disaster. And he wanted to look into this deeper to the point where he actually had an article published in the local paper um, I think it was a little more than local. It was it was a little more uh, expansive, asking anyone who'd had any precognitive experiences to send them in. He ended up getting letters from seventy six people. Wow. Most of them were vague and unrelated. So as you can imagine, you know, there people are. It, it's a stretch to make any connection. Like you said earlier, you know, a lot of mental garbage your your brain's trying to process. Mm -hmm. But there were a few that stood out. 
So Dr. Barker picked the ones that seemed to him the most credible, and he did further research into each of them. He asked each letter writer to supply the names and addresses of anyone else who had heard the account of the premonition before the disaster occurred. So he really wanted to double down and do his research and make sure that this could be corroborated by somebody else, that someone else had heard this story, just so you know the person isn't making it up, um, or at least to kind of safeguard against that a little bit more. And then he interviewed those people as well. So he would interview the friends, the coworkers, the family members who, had, who these people had told about their dreams or their premonitions. So by talking to people's family and friends, he got a better sense of which accounts were more likely to be true. And Errol's story was one of the accounts that made his list. She was the only school child whose experience had come to light, but there were other remarkable stories, and some of those were dreams. Fascinatingly, most of these came from people who lived nowhere near the disaster, They'd huh. never even heard of the town of Aberfan, but somehow they'd had these incredible premonitions. So one came from a 63-year-old man named J. Arthur Taylor, who was from Stacksteads, a village near Lancashire Moors. Two nights before the disaster, he dreamed that um, he was in a town. Um, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it. It's, it was in South Wales. But he had not been in this town for many years, and he was trying to buy a book. He was in front of what he described as a large machine with buttons. He said, Now, I have never seen a computer. This may have been one. I just don't know. Then all of a sudden, while I was standing by this big machine, I looked up and I saw Aberfan, written as if suspended in white lettering against a black background. This seemed to last some minutes. Then I turned and looked the other way, and I saw through a, win a window rows of houses, and everything seemed derelict and desolate. Taylor did not recognize the word, even though he had driven past the village countless times until he heard it on the radio on the day of the disaster. So he didn't even the, know the name of the town, Aberfan, but he saw it in his dream. He saw the letters. Along with this image of oh uh, devastation and desolation. And then it came back to him when he, when he heard it on the radio. So another one came from a woman named Mary Hennessy, who said the night before the tragedy occurred, she dreamed about a group of school, of school children in two rooms who later moved into a larger room and were playing. Quote, at the end of the room, there were long pieces of wood or wooden bars. The children were trying somehow to get over the top or through the bars. I tried to warn someone by calling out, but before I could do so, one little child just slipped out of sight. I, must, I myself was watching from the corridor. The next thing in my dream was hundreds of people all running to the same place. The look on people's faces were terrible. Some were crying, others holding handkerchiefs to their faces. It frightened me so much that it woke me up. So she had this dream of disaster uh, involving little children. And the dream felt so vivid that when she woke up, she was terrified that maybe something had actually happened to her grandchildren and reached out to make sure that nothing bad had happened to them. So she had this sense of urgency, which we'll see 
later on, you know, again and again is one of the hallmarks of a precognitive dream. So another incredible account that was corroborated by others came from a woman named Carolyn Miller, who'd had what she described as a vision on October 20th, the night before the disaster, in which she saw, quote, an old schoolhouse nestling in a valley, then a Welsh miner, then an avalanche of coal hurtling down a mountainside, very specific. And at the bottom of this mountain of hurtling coal was a little boy with a long fringe um, or bangs, looking absolutely terrified to death. Then for a while, I, quote, saw rescue operations taking place. I had an impression that the little boy was left behind and saved. He looked so grief-stricken, I could never forget him. And also with him was one of the rescue workers wearing an unusual peaked cap. So, this dream stayed with her so much that when Carolyn went to church that evening, she told some women about this vision that she'd had. And the next morning at about 8.30 a.m., it was still with her to the point where she told a neighbor. So this could be corroborated by multiple people. Mm. Then two days later, she was watching coverage of the Aberfan disaster when she recognized this little boy she had seen in her dream with a fringe, and his rescuer. So she actually saw them in the, in the, in the television coverage. So all his research convinced Dr. Barker that not only was precognition possible, it was fairly common. And he ended up approaching the editor of a newspaper called The Evening Standard and started what was later called the Premonitions Bureau, which would request that people send in their dreams, visions, foreboding, and then later, they would pair them with related current events that occurred occurred around the world. So it was really? sort of like a study in an attempt to kind of back up premonitions people were having. And from there, his dream studies grew and continued. And I think in a future episode, we have to like circle back and cover more of Barker's studies um, because it's it's really fascinating. But another one linked to this was um, a woman named Kathleen Middleton. And she had also submitted her dreams, but she'd had other ones outside of the Aberfan disaster. Um, on March 1968, she reported to the Premonitions Bureau um, that she had had dreams that were recurring of Robert Kennedy's death. And these felt so real to her and so urgent that she called the Premonitions Bureau three times on June 4th, 1968 to report them. Robert Kennedy was shot after midnight on June 5th, 1968. So just a day later. Um, So I'll keep going. I've got some more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another one that uh, to me really stood out was a man named David Booth, who in May of 1979, an Ohio man named David Booth, he started having these recurring nightmares. And for 10 nights in a row that year, he dreamed the exact same thing. It would start out with a bright, sunny day, blue sky, and he would be at a large airport watching as a big American Airlines jetliner started a taxi up a long runway. 
As the plane geared up for takeoff, he'd notice a sound coming from the plane's engines. And the sound would be disturbing and sound kind of off and alarming, so he knew something was wrong. The plane would then lift up into the air, but suddenly veer off course, flip over, and explode in an enormous fireball. Then in his dream, he would be overwhelmed with a sense of despair. So for the next week, each morning at around the same time, he would wake up with this horrific nightmare still in his mind. He was so disturbed by these dreams that he actually contacted the FAA to tell them about it. And although he thought, these guys are going to think I'm crazy, they listened to the details of his dream, and they even were able to kind of help him figure out what type of aircraft this was he was dreaming about. And they said it was either a Boeing 77 or a DC-10. But ultimately, they brushed it off as just a dream, and no action was taken And on May 25th, 1979, Booth woke up and realized he hadn't had the dream. But instead of thinking this is a good sign, he was afraid that this indicated that the event could actually be about to happen. So he called the FAA and told them, hey, I've been having these dreams. You know, something might be about to happen. And the official... Um, that he spoke to told him that about a half an hour ago, Flight 191, a DC-10, at Chicago O'Hare Airport had crashed, and the circumstances were pretty much identical to his dream. The plane's left engine had broken loose, the plane lost control, less than a mile from the runway, the DC-10 had flipped over and burst into flames, and all 273 people on board, passengers and staff members, died. And at that time, it was the deadliest aviation disaster in U.S. history. So David was overwhelmed with guilt, but really there was nothing he could have done. He did everything he could do. And he did probably more than most of us would have done. Right. You know, and... But even if officials had wanted to follow up, it would have been so difficult to try to assess every single plane for safety. You know, the most they could have done was, let's examine every DC-10, you know, that's that's on the runway and due to be, it it just, it it seems that it wasn't, you know, wasn't something that, that would have happened. Well, I mean, it definitely begs the question, like with these types of dreams, like, is there anything that could be done, right? Is by their very nature that they're prescient of something that in a way has already happened. Right. Right. And I mean, uh, and a lot of times, you know, when these, you know, these disasters happen, like for example, the Titanic, there was a passenger on board the Titanic major Archibald Willingham who had a dream that, uh, that the ship was going to sink while he was on the ship and he was so profoundly affected that he contacted his lawyer to put his affairs in order. Um, Winston Churchill dreamed that England was being invaded and he would lead the defense. Um, This is before he actually ended up doing that. Um, There are many, many accounts of people dreaming of 9-11 before that occurred. Right, Numerous accounts of... Um, Jews in Nazi Germany before 
the Holocaust, dreaming of it. So this huh. is something that that tends to happen. And you know, like you said, you you kind of you have to wonder like what is what is the meaning? I mean, there there are definitely examples that I came across where it was something very specific, like a mother dreaming her child was going to drown, and later facing a similar situation was able to take action because her dream had stuck with her. Um, but it's not only disasters; there are good things. So I'm going to sure. go through a couple of 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 those that are just really remarkable. Um, okay. So one of those is the case of John Godley. So in 1946, an Irish student at Oxford University named John Godley began dreaming of horse races. And the interesting thing is he wasn't really a horse racing fan, but he woke up on March 8th with a strong memory of what he had just dreamed. And in his dream, he was reading the evening paper and he saw the results listing the names of the horses that had run, won. And their names were Bindle and Juleddin. Uh Later that day, he was visiting a friend and he happened to just look at this friend's copy of that day's paper. And out of curiosity, he remembered his dream and he thought, I'll just look at the horse racing section. And sure enough, there was a horse named Bindle racing that afternoon. So then he checked out another paper and looked in the racing section. He found that there was a horse named Juleddin uh, racing at a different location. So Godley was pretty floored by this coincidence, as you would be, and he told both his friends about it, and they all agreed, hey, we've got to place bets on these horses. Both horses won the race. So Godley won 100 pounds, which at the time was quite a lot of money in 1946. So pretty soon, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a college student, and it spread around the Oxford campus what had happened. So Godley was back home visiting his family in Ireland a few weeks later on April 4th, and he had another horse race dream. And in this dream, he saw a list of winners, but when he woke up, he could only remember one of them. It was a horse named Tubermore. So at breakfast, he told his family about the dream, but they lived in a remote area and they didn't have a paper handy and it would be kind of like a hike to go get one. So he ended up contacting the local mail person who would often place bets for people. So that was a thing. You could have your your postmaster mistress place a, a horse racing bet for you. So when she checked, she found that there was a horse with a similar name, not exactly, but instead of Tubermore, it was Tuberose, who'd be racing at 4 p.m. that day in the Grand National Race in, in England. So Godfrey's family was like, hey, that name's pretty close. Let's all bet on Tuberose. So they did. Tuberose won. The family got 60 pounds from their winnings. So at this point... It's clear to Godfrey that his dreams weren't just a one-off fluke. And he decided he was going to start recording them. He was going to give it all he had to try to figure out what's going on here and, and make the most of it. So later on, on July 28th of that year, he had another dream. And this time, it was a very vivid and detailed dream. And he was in a, a phone booth that was very stuffy to the point where when he woke up later, he could actually... Like the smells of, of the, and, and the feeling of being in the stuffy phone booth had stuck with him. 
extremely vivid experience. And he was talking on the phone to his bookie who told him that a horse called Monumenter had won with odds of five to four. Checking the paper, he found a horse with a close name. This was after he woke up. So instead of Monumenter, it was Mentoris. So he thought, okay, close enough. I'll bet on that one. And it ended up winning with odds of not five to four, but six to four. So then it goes quiet for a little while, but a year later, he had another dream. This time, he was at the racetrack, and he actually saw the colors of the winning horse, and he saw the jockey, and the jockey was one that he recognized. So by this time, even though he hasn't been a horse racing fan in the past, he's obviously paying attention now, but he recognized that the jockey is being um, uh, an Australian, and the horse was one uh, that was from India. So he recognized both in the dream. And in the dream, he also heard the crowd shouting the word bogey, the bogey, the bogey. And when he woke up, he checked the paper and he saw that the Indian horse was indeed racing and was being ridden by the Australian jockey, which he hadn't known. And he saw that in the next race, so a one different from that one, there was a horse called not the bogey, but the brogue. And he was like, close enough. So he bets on them. And then he tells his girlfriend at the time, whose name was Angelica, and a friend named Keith Her- Kenneth Harris about the dream. So he placed bets on both horses. And before the races, he decided he was going to prove that he's not cheating. He's not making this up. So he wrote out a detailed account of what he dreamed. He then had the statement officially dated and witnessed by three people. Then he placed the signed statement in a sealed envelope, had the postmaster seal it with the date, and then to top everything off, the postmaster placed it in the post office safe. Both the horses he'd bet on won. So after that, he dreamt of two more winners. And because he becomes so successful, he actually landed a job as a daily racing correspondent at a paper called the Daily Mirror. And on January 16th, 1949, so about three years later, he had another dream about a horse called Timocred uh, or something like that. And again, that horse won. But then after that, the dream stopped for about nine years. So he went a very long time, no more racing dreams. But in 1958, when Godley was in Paris, he had a dream about a horse called Wattman racing in the Grand National. He checked the paper, but the closest name he could find was a horse named Mr. Watt, which is pretty close. So he called in a bet of 25 pounds on Mr. Watt. And you guessed it, Mr. Watt won, and Godley got 450 pounds, which was the largest amount he'd ever won. And the weirdest thing about all of this um, in addition to like the fact that Godley wasn't even interested in this, uh, all of you know the horse racing when all of this started, is it like it culminated kind of in his largest winning. And so after that, he didn't dream about horse racing again. <laughs> and the dreams departed as suddenly as they'd arrived. Huh, okay. So wow. there are actually um, lottery winners, people who've dreamed about their windfall before it occurred. 
and were very certain they were going to be winners because of the the nature of their dreams just being so convincing and vivid. But in some cases, they actually dreamed their winning numbers. So I'll just go through a couple of those. So one of them was a man named Fateh Ozkan, who was a waiter at a Turkish restaurant in York in the in the United Kingdom. And one night he dreamed he was showing his manager bundles of cash that he'd won in the lottery. And the dream felt so vivid to him that the next day he actually talked to his boss and was like, we've got to buy a lottery ticket. So they both went to the supermarket and they bought a ticket. Their numbers came up and they won about $1.7 million worth of winnings. But like so many lottery winners, they didn't live happily after, ever after. So Fateh's boss said, you know, because the money came out of his till, he should have all of it. And Fateh was like, but wait, you wouldn't even have the money if it weren't for my dream. They ended up going to court. Um, but the judge kind of sided with Fateh, you know, because he's a strong believer in dreams. He'd interpreted his dream his dream to mean that they would win, convinced his boss. So at the end of the day, both men were ordered to split their winnings in half, which they did. So this next huh. one, uh, Isanula Khan, who grew up in, um, pretty poor in a small Himalayan town called Batagram. And when he was 18, he emigrated to the United States. He lived in Chicago first, and then he moved to Washington, D.C. And he began working two jobs as a security guard and a taxi driver. So very hardworking person, um, you know, obviously didn't come from a lot of money. And uh, anyway, one night he had a dream. And he later said, this was something that I saw I saw too many beautiful things like rubies and diamonds. And then I'm speaking to a lot of people, like uh, too big of a crowd. And then he saw this number, two, four, six, 17, 25, Powerball 31. For the next 10 years, he would play those numbers. Oh my God. One day, they won him the jackpot of $55 million. So when he found out he'd won, he gave someone a final cab ride for free. And then he bought a Mercedes and he bought a couple homes. But he ended up returning to his hometown and ran for mayor and won. Two days later, there was a catastrophic earthquake in Pakistan, which took the lives of more than 3,000 people in Batagram, his hometown, alone. Just absolute devastation. And the local government was very much tied up in bureaucracy. So Isanula ended up providing disaster relief himself, handing out $300,000 worth of medicine and roofing materials, um, food and water for people affected by the earthquake. So his winnings were actually able to, to help him with, um, you know, disaster relief after this horrible thing had happened. I love that. I know. I know, except for he did say it sounded like he became a little world weary after that. I read an interview where he said that what he learned is about money is that, you know, when you have it, you learn that people are greedy and that it, money can only do so much. So 
I think he also <coughs> suffered as a result of this. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Um, so I've got another one. Uh, Mary Sanderson, who was a telephone operator in Manchester, New Hampshire, she had a dream one night where she saw the winning numbers of the lottery, and she woke up the next morning, and they were still in her head. It was 3, 5, 13, 18, 45, Powerball 20. So, so, so specific. So she went to a store. She bought a ticket. She won $66 million with those numbers. And uh, so anyway, that's it. That's all I got <laughs> for <Okay>. now. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, there's a lot there. Like, yeah, there is, I mean, I think, yeah. Um, and there are a um, lot of explanations mm-hmm. potentially. I'll just run through those, and then I, I, I really sure. want to hear what you think about this. Okay, so, sure. Um, uh, you know, obviously, like Carl Jung, and, and he's another person who had had precognitive dreams. Um, I didn't include include his because they were a little. Um, there was a lot of symbolism with those, you know, and I thought they were open to interpretation. Um, but yeah, definitely he had a lot in, of like UFO dreams too. I think he he, he had a lot to say about yeah yeah he had a lot of oh. to say about them. We, we gotta um, we gotta dive into that. Yeah, um, he was obviously a big dream guy. Otherwise, but um, in terms of symbolism and it just like as a form of communication. But yeah yeah maybe we didn't do a whole episode about him. But um about yeah, that we, aspect we, of we really should. Um, but but yeah, that's one thing you know where people you know just thinking about these dreams in terms of synchronicity are we mm-hmm. tapping into the collective unconscious in some yeah. way or is it quantum reality so is time not linear um and are we experiencing kind of time loops back on itself so the future can be now we can be diving into the future or the past or, you know, as the ancients believed, and many people still do, um, a common thread of explaining these is that these are messages from God or other spiritual entities, higher beings communicating with us. Um, is it a, an as yet unexplained psychic ability that we have? You know, and it seems in general, we've talked about this before, uh, you know, is the brain kind of a filter of a larger awareness that we all have and that after death or, you know, in drug-induced states or in dream states or meditation, are we somehow able to access this information better? And so the REM state is is one of those ways maybe. Hmm. And then, of mm-hmm. course, there's the, the, the materialist killjoys who say this is merely coincidence you get enough people talking about the dreams of course one of them is gonna like hit the lottery it's confirmation bias blah 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 and i mean in a lot of cases maybe most cases that's that's certainly true but it can explain all of them right mm-hmm. so so anyways no, that, i want to hear your thoughts <laughs> yeah well, i mean i have a few i mean um well, first of all, the you know the the ones that were more about these disasters and that there was these strangers sort of um, you know having these dreams that about people that had really had nothing to do with them is really interesting to me because it just makes you think about how connected we are, right, in ways that we don't really understand, you know, on, on what level and what realm or whatever that means that there obviously is an interconnection, right? The way that like, um, you know, we know now that like trees have communication networks and they can sort of talk through the air and through roots and all this stuff. And they can tell forests 
hundreds or thousands of miles away about diseases coming and things like that, but that somehow Wait, as what? human beings, we have this we need to do a whole uh, network of communication. Yeah. <laughs> but that these dreams are sort of like proof of that. Right. And, and that you, you know, you don't, you also with a lot of these, we're hearing about them because either they're so sort of horrible or so, um, you know, reflective of things that we sort of value or envy, like winning the lottery or something that there's probably a lot that, you know, I mean, it just makes me think that maybe there are a lot that we experience that we don't know about simply because there hasn't been a dialogue about it or somebody championing, like the the guy who's like, I'm going to set up this whole thing, right? Like, what if he hadn't set that up, right? And And certainly... I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of events where this has happened where it just went unnoticed or or it only went noticed by a small community. Do you know what I mean? Where it was never logged in the larger sort of cultural consciousness. And so it's certainly possible that we've had dreams about events that happened somewhere else and we just didn't even know, yeah. right? You know, I know I have. You have? 100%, yeah. It, yeah, so. Since I was a teenager. You want, have you? Have I had, well, no, no, I'm saying I don't know because I don't know, I don't know. Like I'm saying that, no, I I guess I don't know. I haven't had that. um, You're saying you've dreamt of events uh, other than that had nothing to do with you, but then you found out later. Yes. That they happen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I'd like to hear about that, but I'm also saying that. Yeah. I can just tell you, uh, you know, a couple of them, but it's happened to me over the years and it, it seemed to start up when I was a teenager. Um. And for me, I feel like in a lot of cases, it, it tends to be tied to people that I feel some something for, where I can almost tune in to them in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'll tell you, I'll tell you one. Um, okay, so actually, I'll tell, I'll, t- I'll just tell you a few. <laughs> I think you okay, might think okay, some, okay, uh, you know, ahead. one or two of these are, are a little bit amusing. Um, but. So, so one of them, most recently, um, a very close friend of mine, I, I dreamed one night, um, this is about, I don't know, seven years ago now, but I, I dreamed that she told me she was pregnant, and um, I went to visit her um, a few days later, and, and when I woke up, it felt very real, the dream was still with me, to the point where I meant to kind of tell her about this, and then I forgot. Um, but a few days later, uh, I, I went to visit her and she, I still remember her. She came out of the bathroom and she was like, oh, I've got something to tell you. And she told me she was pregnant. So I, you know, that was, that's one that just seemed very striking. Um, but I I also, when I was, um, like 16, I was really in love with this guy and he was, uh, I don't know. He was, he was kind of. My, the love of my life at that time. He he was an older boy that my mother wouldn't let me date because he was nineteen. Um, but anyway, um, I dreamed that he got married, and it was a very very vivid dream. And I remember waking up and trying to talk myself down, like, "Well, that's ridiculous. He's uh-huh, not going to get uh-huh. married. I mean, we're too young for that." A few months later, um, he ended up getting someone pregnant and getting married to her. Um. And uh, there were other things that happened with that um, with that uh. person too, where I where I felt like I had some kind of weird connection. Um, 
but yeah, things like that have happened to me over the years. I, I guess I'll tell you the the, the one that I guess <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you. All right, I was I was when I was like a young teenager, I was in love with Duran Duran. <laughs> of course. But one night I had this really harrowing dream. I dreamed that Simon Laban had gotten in this horrible accident, and to the point where I woke up about and and, and I couldn't shake it. And I was like praying for him, and I was all about, about, about but uh, it was like a short time later, and I don't remember if it was days or a few weeks, but um, he actually uh, he'd been on a yacht and he got into this accident, but he was saved, and and everything turned out okay. But yeah, I mean, these are just like a few examples. Um, but I've noticed over the years that there are eerie coincidences, and for me. Any kind of what I would what I would um, call psychic abilities. A lot of the time, it's it's tied specifically to dreams for me. So I've always had an oh. interest in that, and I pay attention. And, and certainly, most of them are are either mental garbage or wish fulfillment, or you know, all the things they say to explain these away. But but there have been some things that just to me have felt so uh, like pointed that that. I, I really do feel that they're kind of in that realm of the uh, the paranormal. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think th- those are all really interesting. And I mean, what stands out to me, I guess, in terms of like the kind of the examples that you've given this episode, I mean, those, I don't know, make sense in a certain way because you're sort of tuned into the person, like you said, right? It's like you're tuned into their frequency. You feel this affinity for them. And, and I think you can be, you know, connected with people and even people you haven't necessarily met. Like I definitely have people sort of historically and, and also just that I know from whatever reasons that I feel connected to that I've never met them, but there's a, but they're part of my mind and part of my world, like the world I see out in front of me, right. Mm -hmm. The, my worldview or, um, the, the population, <laughs> you know, but, but some of these, that, um, these examples of these people who are seeing things about other people that they, that they don't know, mm-hmm. that they don't know and don't mean anything to them that they've never met. Right. Do you know what I mean? That's sort of shocking to me that because it, it means you can be connected in a way that you don't, that's, that's not even not only just a way you don't understand, but just that you're connected to people and totally unconscious of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that yeah. we are connected in that way. And that, and that probably goes on more than we think, I guess that, you know, you see it in these big disasters and stuff like that, but there's gotta be even more than that going on. And we just, we wake up and we don't even realize we were dreaming about somebody else. Right. Like that must happen too. Right. Yeah. Cause these are just examples that have caught our attention either because they're so tragic or, you know, the sort of, I don't know, banality of the, you know, the lottery winnings. It's like, it's so, um, on one level, not to, I'm sure that that money meant to some people, uh, um, meant something to those people, but it's not deep, right? It's right. money. I know. Do you know what I mean? It's like kind of superficial and yet it- <laughs> we're tuned, they're tuned in on it. Do you know what I mean? Like that's kind of crazy when you think about it. Like it doesn't, I mean, like the guys, the, um, was it was it the uh, FBI or who was it that the, uh, that were, did all the experiments with um, tracking the um, 
the stock market. Do you remember what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. well, I mean, I did they found read they a little bit this. about that. There were there were actual dreams about the stock market. I think like there was a twenty. Well, they did it on purpose, study. right? They were able to tune into the stock mm-hmm. market. And here's this thing that's like it is. There's no emotional content right there. It's just or it is or it's very base, right? This idea of just greed or money or you know what I mean. Right. It's not like meaningful, right. and yet the mind can still be tuned into that if there's attention there in some way. Or if it means yeah, enough, yeah, that's what I, I wonder. If it means if enough to you, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, so, I know it's inexplicable, right? Yeah, yeah. So. <clears throat> Um, what are some signs that your dream might actually be a premonition? So I'll just go through these right now okay. too. Uh, one sure. of them, you know, as you've probably noticed, you know, through all these stories, vividness. So, and not always, of course, we've all had vivid dreams. Um, but often um, precognitive dreams feature very clear, detailed imagery and they linger long after you wake up and they really stick with you, you know, you know, maybe even years. Mm-hmm. Emotion they evoke unusually strong emotion, good or bad. So it can be anxiety, it can be joy, love, sadness, or fear. Urgency. Uh, people, you know, as we've seen in these these examples, um, people often have a sense of urgency or purpose, like they need to take action or tell someone. Um, Repetition. So precognitive dreams can be recurring, like in the example of the airliner disaster. Um, it's almost like they're repeating until the dreamer accepts or understands the message. And I know my mother uh, had a dream that to me seems like it was probably precognitive, and she told me about it. But um, I believe it maybe either started before I was born or, or right afterward when I was very small. But um, she would dream of a tidal wave. It would be the same scenario hmm. over and over again where a tidal wave would come in and she would see it coming and it would just wash everything away. And we didn't live anywhere near the ocean. We did live by Lake Superior. So, you know, you can write it off as that. But um, these dreams are recurring. And then in the space of one year and possibly Less, my mother lost her father. He passed away, and she lost her job, and and my dad left, and her marriage. So, in the space of a year, like her entire life wow. was wiped out, and she had to rebuild yeah. it, and the and those dreams ceased. So it was almost like it was kind of like her subconscious cluing her in that she was to brace herself for this coming just complete you know desolation yeah. and rebuilding yeah and i think you know maybe we'll do an episode on this at some point that that there is um symbols for people you know i mean jung talked about this a lot right like we all like kind of almost have our own little inner mythologies but um the naturalistic symbols tend to repeat for tend tend to um be similar or the same for, for different people. Right. And water being one, like I often have water dreams. Right. And usually I interpret those as like having an emotional content to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Like usually that water has um, an emotional content that it's about like feelings and overwhelming feelings and that sense of rushing water or waves or, or whatever. And it can be 
different if the water is clear versus muddy. And there's lots of ways to almost read them in terms of what's being sort of communicated. I mean, that's how I interpret them anyways, but, mm-hmm. but that like that, the naturalistic world is being sort of part of the symbolism of our minds is, I don't know. I think there's something to it. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So what do you think? What do you think is going on here? What's the explanation behind it? I mean, I, I like, I don't know. I, I sort of struggle with even the concept that there's all <laughs> that it's all, really all that like mysterious. Like, I just think that we clearly have parts of our mind that um, can tap into the, um, you know, collective unconscious and that, you know, time is not linear. Time is a, is a perception. It's a mental construct. It's not reality. And our minds are able to see backwards and forwards in time. If there's something meaningful there to see, you know what I mean? If, and, and maybe it does, maybe it happens more than we think. And and only in certain times are we sort of conscious of it, but I think we're always sort of interconnected with other people and our past and our future. And I think that, you know, the idea that our consciousness can extend into those regions is, you know, not at all hard to believe to me. And, and, and that maybe in our dreams, we have more ability to let go, you know, and that those parts of our mind can have a little bit more free reign because they're not as hampered by, you know, like Mark Twain, our like worldview, you know, which kind of refutes these things at every turn, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. so there's almost like that, those walls aren't up, which is why we can be visited and why we can experience things and, you know, that maybe our waking mind is a little more reluctant to acknowledge. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we can experience anything, any aspect of the human experience or consciousness can be experienced in that state whatever's happening. And I think that there's physiological stuff happening, obviously psychic stuff happening, obviously, but obviously some connection to the spiritual realm, Mm -hmm. right? Where do we go? Like where, you know, when we're dreaming. Yeah. I can't wait to find out. We're going (laughs) to delve into this more too. Definitely. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we did it? I think we did it. Precognitive dreams, everybody. Yeah, that was great. I enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. Um, So thanks, everybody. Um, We really appreciate uh, the ratings and reviews if you've left us. Like, tell your friends about us. You know, if you're liking the show, throw us five stars. Yeah, and we also, we really appreciate hearing from you. Yes. Um, So, shadowlandpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and DM us. If you guys have have had any precognitive dreams or any kind of dreams that, any dream experiences, whether it's like a visitation dream or communication with someone through a dream or anything that you feel like is kind of close to the paranormal realm, we'd love to hear about it. Um, But we really, really want to thank you for being part of this journey with us for the last few years. Um, And we've got more stuff lined up and we're excited about sharing it with you. So definitely. Yeah. All right. 
Well, thanks. And I guess until next time, yeah? All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. All right. All right bye. bye. Shadowland Podcast is produced by Seth Jablon and Christina Callery. Edited by Tim Kelly. Theme music by Tim Lincoln. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.